Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this podcast topic is North Korean Tactics, a part of our series on threat doctrine. With me today is Colonel Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, John Cleves, the Director of Operations for Training and Doctrine Command, G2, Analysis and Control Element, and David Pendleton, an Intelligence Specialist with TRADOC G2. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. John, if you could start just by uh, giving us a little background on yourself and then TRADOC G2 ACE. So um, G2 is a staff section, so that's how people relate to that typically. Uh, And TRADOC G2 performs all those functions on behalf of the commander like any G2 would. But I think today, more importantly, we are part of what is known as the Operational Environment Enterprise, OEE. And that is a community of practice that helps the Army uh, and our partners understand the operational environment now into the near term, midterm. Um, it is bigger than just G2. Uh, <clears throat> members of the intelligence community, multinational partners, you know, uh, subject matter experts across academia and other places. So it's a big, big effort with G2 with the core. Um, the ACE, and there has many components, including inside G2. Uh, the Operational Environment Center helps people understand what's going on by uh, delivering the operational environment in forms where people can train and do things with it from a um, field of force integration concept capability development standpoint. Um, the ACE, specifically, is where the analysts reside. Uh, that take a look at what the world is and is going to be in the future with respect to operational environment threat and describes that for the Army and our partners. Um, And I'm basically the ACES S3. So the analytical capability inside the operational environment enterprise is called the ACE, so people can relate to it. They know what an ACE is, and uh, we represent that here today. Okay, well, thanks for that introduction there, uh, John. Now, Dave, if you could give us some background on yourself being the, uh, the author of this, this publication we're going to talk about today? Thanks. Uh, I've been with the uh, TRADOC G2 for over a decade now, and I've been in the same office. We've changed our names. We're OETA right now, which is Operational Environment and Threat Analysis. I served in Korea a long time ago, and so when I came into the office, I became the North Korean subject matter expert, or SME, and I've been studying them since my arrival. I've published several articles and publications on North Korea over that time. And so when we were tasked to write the ATP for North Korea, it fell into my hands to be the primary author. So today we're discussing an upcoming publication, and that's Army Techniques Pub 7-100.2, which is titled North Korean Tactics. The publication is a part of the Army's intelligence community's effort to support the renewed focus on large-scale combat operations by presenting how adversary forces think and act at the tactical level. It draws on North Korean culture, history, its strategic aims, and previous operations to ascertain how the Korean People's Army, or KPA, is likely to be employed should hostilities resume on the peninsula. The publication explores everything from command relationships and force structure to battle drills and equipment. However, gentlemen, I kind of want to start this off, though, by talking about some of the origins of this pub. The, uh, the army that I joined in 2001 didn't have specific threat doctrine that I was aware of. 
Um, so John, if you could give us some background on what, what spurred this development. So um, uh, in the summer of 1999, the team that I, um, that I became part of, and I'm currently the, you know, basically the S34, uh, the trade commander turned to them and said, we have a threat-based doctrine right now, the Soviet Union, and then its follow-on uh, after the Soviet Union uh, fell as, a, as an entity. Uh, I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to charge you folks with giving me a white paper on how the world looks for the next 15 years. And when that got done, and I just joined the team, and this is kind of dating myself. I came here as a major, so you know, uh, now I'm one of the graybeards, I guess. But the, uh, the, team, the team that I was on was related to that. One team got the mission to write that paper. The second team got the mission to say, now how are we going to take what we just learned and make it so what for the Army? What are the implications for training? And, and we were more in the concept development business then too because of um, before the split to AFC, you know, before the change in the structure. Uh, for training, education, leader development, and for capabilities development, what does that mean in terms of in this case, threat, the specific part of an operational environment, threat. And so in the process of determining which way to go, and at that point, everything was on the table. We could have picked a different country. We could have picked a set of countries. We could have picked, you know, no country. Uh, and what the team discovered was that, is that tactics and techniques are separate things that often get conflated. And that tactics are universal, essentially, and techniques are what change from time period to time period, culture to culture. And so let's explain tactics to the Army as a core concept uh, and how our adversaries will act and have techniques be layered in on top of that as they change over time. And the idea was that book was going to be um, consolidated best practice expression of tactics across all of our potential threats. And so all of the goodness... Uh, or badness, depending on how you look at it, uh, that our potential adversaries could bring to us would be contained in one place. And then we could talk about the specific adversaries, you know, in different methodologies. Um, so it's a composite model. Another reason why it was a composite model is because if you look at what you have to do in training, education, and leader development, you have to challenge the Army as it executes all of, it, all of its disparate tasks. And there are 700, whatever the number is today, tasks that the Army has to accomplish across all the warfighting functions and unit types, and et cetera. So if you have to challenge all those and you're going to go and pick one threat, one country, one adversary of whatever type, state or non-state, is there one that challenges them all? And the answer is no. And so the other reason why we had a composite model is because we needed something that challenged everything. So, and every, every time we changed chiefs of staff or trade-out commanders, we asked the same question. Are you still into the idea that the scrimmage is harder than the game? And every commander since I came on board, and I believe before then, has believed that that was a good idea. So the composite model in the TC7100 series is harder than reality because it contains everything. Everybody's good ideas, China, Russia, Iran, you know, Syria, Botswana, you know, if somebody's got a good idea out there, you know, in terms of being an adversary of the United States, it was contained inside that series of books. But no one saw Russia in them day to day. When somebody opened one of those, even though I, when we first wrote it, the argument was it was to Russia because 
Russia provides a lot of the things that we want to be able to act against, be able to not have interfere with our execution of our mission, uh, more so probably than any other single potential adversary. You know, another thing we discovered is just how few actual doctrinal trees there are in the world. You either got yours from the Brits, or you got yours from the Russians, or you got yours from us, or you got yours from the Chinese. After that, it starts to really peter out. It's like coaching trees in football, you know. So um, this one has and a lot of roots, a lot of branches. So uh, that was one of the concerns and over time, especially as it passed through the time period that everybody was off on, you know, OND and OEF, uh, focusing on things that weren't large-scale combat operations, that weren't people or adversaries like Russia, China, Iran, whatever. They came back to it saying, I need to see that here, and I don't see it here. And they didn't grow up with it. They weren't coal warriors like, you know, me and Dave, right, who, you know, cut our teeth on that as lieutenants. And so it wasn't familiar to them. And in addition, we hadn't been doing the best job of explaining the techniques over time. That was kind of all over the map. Different players were involved in expressing that. AWG's a player. And it was good information. It was just scattered, right? So how do we bring that all together? So the decision we made was to produce, instead of updating TC 700.2, which really hasn't lost any of its, what's in it is still true today, because it focused only on the universal and didn't focus on the techniques that change over time. Let's leave that in place and take those ideas and bring them into threat-specific ATPs, no single one of which will challenge all of the tasks the Army has to execute, but as a package, you can see your particular adversary. Uh, and understand it better because you're not just getting the core tactics, you're also getting what they specifically do about it. Well, couldn't you make the argument too, John, that uh, so you talked about the Cold War. We had the 7100, they were 7100, right? The Soviet Army, two volume. Right, followed by the Fiat Trader Pam 350 series, yeah, which so, is in between. You know, as I'm a lieutenant, armor lieutenant, and armor captain. Uh, we were memorizing the tables in there and the drills and the formations and so forth because, you know, in 1989, 1990, uh, you know, we, we kind of had a sense that the Cold War was over, but that's what we trained against. Um, but we had a specific, it was a specific problem set, and you could become expert at it. Um, but that was, a, like you said, a conscious decision at the time to stay on that model for a period of, of, of time because it made sense. But... We, we would then were, would put units in situations where the opposition that they faced, pick an operation, was going to be different than that, uh, maybe Mogadishu or, or something, um, where then you would have the people come back and say, oh, the Army got rid of all, you know, when, when it went threat-based looking at one threat, it ignored all the other more likely threats in the world. That was and a very common argument back in the late 90s. Yeah, the other thing I'd add is that the... Um, Another thing that we found, I think it's going to come up in, in the discussion later, we'll go into more detail, but that the, we observe training in the Army as the bad guys, as the red side. Um, and we're not, we're not chartered to teach that. That's the ICO's job, is to talk to intel professionals about how to do their function. But we get asked about it a lot because we see a lot of it, just because of where we are and who we are. And one of the challenges we have is you're portraying this threat you're involved in causing my problem. If I'm a G2 about to do a warfighter, or if I'm a Brigadist 2 headed to Irwin or Polk, you know, you guys are part of the problem. You, you're doing this to me. That's personal, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, 
So we, um, we're all also either were before and still are or have become intel professionals, and we want to help. These are our fellow soldiers. These are people that we don't want to just, you know, ha, 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 here's some threat, die. You know, we want to help them out, you know. So one of the questions we get is, you've created threat. I can't do what Colonel Creed just talked about. I can't do what we used to do back when I was a kid. And we would say, oh, I see the CRP. I can start my stopwatch, and I can see the FSE come in a few minutes behind it. And one of the things that we learned, and this is where we differ often from the expression of U.S. tactics and U.S. doctrine, is that we express everything that the threat is going to do in terms of function and not in terms of array. Because one of our observations is that twos and people going into war fighters and training events and real world operations as well, we observe those too, um, are expecting certain things to be in certain places and not looking for who's doing what in the same way. One, one example is the reason why the FSE, the forward security element, was 15 minutes behind the CRP, the Combat Recon Patrol, was because if it was in a BMP, Soviet infantry fighting vehicle, and was traveling across terrain that was common to the North German plane, the distance that you needed to be to stay out of tow range took you 15 minutes to cross. So you would want your CRP to make contact without you being in direct fire range so you could maneuver. If I was going to close, I'd have to close that gap on that terrain in that vehicle with that threat, the tow 2 missile, that was 15 minutes. In any other situation, in triple canopy in Columbia with rifle armed soldiers on foot, it's a completely different equation. We didn't memorize why these two things were that far apart. We memorized the what? The you know, time, right? Yeah, time, space. That was okay. It. And so as soon as I was taken out of that uh, situation, as soon as I was given any other military problem to solve, I didn't understand that what I was looking for was they have to be, if my, if my significant weapon system is a rifle and I can affect you know, something 400 meters away, then they have to stay 400 meters apart in order to be outside of direct fire range. And how fast can a guy on foot traverse 400 meters in a mountainous jungle of whatever country? You know, completely different problem, same idea. So TC-700 series explains those problems in terms of the why as opposed to the what. And we try to bring that into these ATPs. So we're trying not to give people more Cold War-era doctrinal templates. We're trying to explain the functions that these people are going to execute, layered over with techniques that are specific to them because of who they are, their culture, their economy, you know, their, their, what kind of equipment they have to deal with, their technology level. The terrain they're most the terrain likely. they're most likely to fight on, absolutely. So before we actually dive too much further into some of the, the contents of the, the publication, I'm, I'm curious as to how you gentlemen source this publication. The, uh, the Hermit Kingdom is not known for being forthcoming other than their military parades and missile tests. So how do you guys go about finding the information on their actual techniques that they're employing? Yes, it's often difficult to find current information on the KPA. Much of what is written about the KPA in North Korea is at the strategic level and not at the tactical level where we want this ATP to be written. We use military publications from the 2nd Infantry Division, the 40th Infantry Division, which is the Army National Guard unit out of uh, California, Mission Command Training Program documents, uh, and other trade op publications. Some of these are s somewhat dated, 
But North Korea has not really changed its tactics and techniques that much over the years. We also examined intelligent community documents from the DIA, the CIA, and NGIC. We also looked at books, documents, and articles from academic institutions, civilian think tanks, subject matter experts, and the media. In total, there was over 525 different separate sources used, at least that many. As I said before, their doctrine is somewhat dated. Uh, even though the Korean War is 70 years past, a lot of their information from their last major war is what they're still using for that. They've supplemented that with Soviet and Russian doctrine from the 60s and 70s, but they have also added observations that they have seen over the last 20 years uh, from the Americans fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan, and in Bosnia. So truly a uh, community effort on this one. Yes, it was a collaboration from many different people throughout the Army and the, anyone that knew about North Korea. I'd like to add something there, just yeah. real quick, sorry. So to add to what Dave just said, one thing I want people to be sure to remember, and this is across the ATP program, not just the North Korea ATP, that's why I wanted to add it, is that we are expressing not what that adversary is saying in their classroom not what that adversary is doing in their exercises that we observe, uh, not what um, they did on their last uh, operation that they were involved with, but how we think they're going to fight us in the near midterm, a U.S.-led coalition, which they are not doing. So it's a projection of the future. And so Dave's, re Dave's required and the other authors are required to express a projection as much as they are to gather views of current events or history or what have you. And so the last part of what they do is to say, given all that, if it were us, how would this look uh, if they were engaged with us in a military operation today? And so it's not, a, it's not a historical document. It's not a, you know academic research paper in terms of reporting on what is currently seen so much as a projection of the near term, which is dangerous ground to be on. The good news is, is that tactics are both universal and not classified. Techniques might be, might be because we only know them through certain sources, or they um, attack vulnerabilities we don't want other people to know we have. So we have to classify that. But for the most part, the functions that somebody has to perform in the battlefield are universal. We're looking for how North Korea does them in this case. And the Russia ATP, we're looking for how Russia might do them. So. See, that's a... That's a key point, the, this idea of projection into the future. It, it, because there were people sensitive about us, quite frankly, writing uh, doctrinal publications that portrayed adversaries in the contemporary operational environment as, you know, potential enemies. Um, and the national defense strategy in 2018 went a long way towards, since that, you know, unclassified portions of it. I mean, it named names and so forth. Um, and, and most people are realistic about that. but the, the, It did the, make that easier. <laughs> yeah. But this isn't that we're predicting uh, that there's going to be a conflict with, with North Korea or any of the other adversaries we, we might have books on. Um, what it does is help us prepare in a realistic manner. And if you're prepared uh, from a training perspective in a, in a realistic manner, um, conflict is less likely. So, I mean, this is actually a means towards generating conventional deterrence. You know, if you're ready for the types of fights, and it's not dusting off air land battle, it's a multipolar world, so there's lots of adversaries that we might have to fight someday. 
if we're prepared reasonably well and they understand that we're uh, prepared reasonably well, um, that, that contributes to deterrence and not having to fight in the first place. And, and ultimately, that's you know, where we want to go. Uh, if we can avoid a fight because we're ready for one, all the better for the nation and, and the Army. Now, if we can start to dive into the actual ATP a bit, it's divided into two parts. The, the first part is on North Korean forces, and the second part, part two, is on North Korean actions. I know, John, you already kind of touched on this, but I, I was hoping we could elaborate a little bit more. What's the, can we explain the emphasis on the North Korean formations, essentially? If it's, is it a sort of sit temp or doc temp that we're looking at? Or I know you mentioned functions of units. How, are, how is this, uh, what's the importance of this study? Well, I'm going to let, let Dave go into more detail, but just to answer that, the, the framework part of that question, in order to talk about, you know, there's functions that a force has to uh, execute in order to be successful in a combat operation. Security is one. Fixing is one. So I know that if I'm fighting someone they're, and they're, I'm defending, for example, they're going to try to fix part of my formation, probably most of it, because they only want to deal with a small part. That's just basic. So I know the North Koreans, for example, are going to try to fix us. And there are different ways to do that. Which ways are available to them and which ways are they likely to choose based on which ways are available. And that's what the meat of it is. In order to do that, it's hard to, it would be hard to read the second portion without knowing what they've got for tools in the toolkit. Right? And that's fundamentally, you know, why that's there. And that'll be true of all of the ATPs. There's a stage setter that talks about both their strategic framework and what they have available in their military forces to begin the product and then talk about you know, what we're going to do with them in a second. Yes, uh, part one provides the foundation uh, for part two of the ATP. Uh, part one it consists of three chapters. The first one discusses the KPA, or North Korea Army, their motivations, capabilities, intents, and guiding principles. Chapter two is, uh, discusses the functional tactics. All armies must uh, conduct functions, as John just explained, However, most of the people in the Army do not speak or read Korean, so a lot of Chapter 2 is based on the TC 7-100.2 series, explaining them in the functional tactics terms there. And then Chapter 3 is the North Korean force structure and formations. It's not an order of battle, because an order of battle would be classified. And also, if they made a structural change tomorrow, then the document would be outdated. So we didn't want to do that. However, we do provide examples of what a typical North Korean infantry division would look like uh, using a wire diagram. Now, part two is, gets into the details of how they're going to perform these functional tactics or actions on the battlefield. We discuss in detail reconnaissance and security operations, offensive and defensive actions, counter-stability actions, and then what they call Electronic Intelligence Warfare, or IEW. While similar to United States Information Warfare, uh, KPA IED operations encompass more than R7 elements of information warfare. It's much more than that. And then scattered throughout Part 2 is a series of diagrams providing examples of how the KPA may conduct these based on uh, the terrain and stuff. In other words, uh, this is not exactly how they're do going to do it because the terrain is going to dictate how the action is going to occur. 
You know, if it's more open area, then you know distance are going to be graded. If it's uh, mountainous, then the great uh, the distances are going to shrink. Type thing. So no, I appreciate that. Now I think we've already kind of established that that tactics are fairly universal, and that's something I noticed quickly as I read through the pub that. You know, we do some the same type of movements, whether it's you know penetration, infiltration. We're we're, we're doing the same things. However, what I'm I'm curious about is what sticks out as being different. The tech, obviously, the techniques, but what is different between the biggest the big differences between U.S. and North Korean techniques per se for some of these tactics that are universal. Uh, the KPA has many similarities to the Cold War Soviet tactics. One of the things they want to do is they want to break through the initial combat units at the front at the DMZ and then hit the rear area. They want to go after command and control points, such you know, command posts, communication nodes, and also they want to hit the combat service support units. They would prefer that they would you know not hit infantry and armor units directly if they don't have to. Now the KPA thinks or uh, that the American and ROC armies need large amounts of supplies and logistics to fight and that their combat uh, American combat units will become ineffective if the supply lines can be interdicted. So that's what they're going to go after. And without the c- supplies and communication, the KPA believes that the enemy's infantry and army units will become ineffective faster. Now, secondly, a, a difference is, is that the KPA never considers a unit combat infect, ineffective. Even when it, units drop below 20% in strength, they're not pulled off the battlefield. And even if they're down to, you know, small unit lev- uh, units, you know, fire teams or squads, uh, these soldiers are taught to hide and conduct stay-behind ambushes of combat service support units as they pass through uh, their area. And basically, they use propaganda to convince their soldiers that American and ROC soldiers are going to basically torture and kill them if they're captured. And therefore, it's better to fight to the death than, than be captured. And we have examples of this where some special operations units, uh, a submarine was captured off of the coast of of South Korea a few years back and on board half the people evidently wanted to surrender and they were shot by the other half and then the other half uh, took their own lives to avoid being captured. So this propaganda that uh, has evidently gotten down to many of the soldiers throughout the uh, KPA. Well, that's definitely a different technique than, uh, <laughs> than something we'd employ. So to, to add to that, the, some of the things that are more universally, not just the KPA, but we find in trends across all the potential adversaries, I would make the case to you that the United States Armed Forces are the most casualty averse in history. Um, I know that our NATO partners believe that, certainly, um, from personal experience. But So our adversaries are not going to be as casualty averse as we are, um, which plays into what you know, Dave was saying about yeah. I'm willing to leave a unit, you know, what we consider black. And we would do things in terms of passages of lines, withdrawals, retrogrades, in order to change the combat power equation where we'd be considering those folks still active as part of our combat power equation if we were the adversary. Um, most of our adversaries uh, expect not to have air superiority where we do. And so a lot of our, and this is really about technique. Once again, I just, I don't want to be harping on that, but the tactics part is universal. What's the difference between us and the 
and uh, both of us have to fix the other side so I don't have to fight all their common power. Both of us have to um, isolate the battlefield so they can't change the combat power equation with reinforcements and quick reaction forces. We do it differently. You know, and one of the reasons we do it differently is because of our culture or what we have available to us. And in one case, we're going to likely have a significant air power advantage. And so their techniques will be structured to deal with the fact they're probably looking at that from the opposite angle. Well, and that was something that struck me as I read through the pub. And it, it does seem they, they rely very heavily on artillery uh, because they don't have the air superiority and they know they're not going to have it as, as we hope to establish. Um, so my, my question, gentlemen, would be, do we think that they can, do they have responsive artillery that can support their maneuver forces? And how is that artillery structured, I guess? Is it, you know, an, an IFC or is it, you know, Integrated Fires Command, or is this something different? Well, the uh, KPA has uh, a large amount of artillery. They have over 7,900 artillery pieces, 7,500 mortars, and over 5,100 multiple rocket launchers. Artillery units begin at the regimental level, but mortars are down to the company level. Now, the KPA fields an entire artillery division, 21 artillery brigades, several missile brigades or regiments, and these all provide indirect fire support to the maneuver units. Similar to old Soviet doctrine, they will form regimental artillery groups, division artillery groups, and core artillery groups abbreviated RAGs, DAGs, and CAGs. Now, whoever the senior commander is uh, for that or, uh, organization, they will be in charge of, of, of all the artillery for the organization. Now, about 65 to 70 percent of all the artillery is located within uh, three defensive belts within 80 kilometers of the uh, DMZ, the new militarized zone in, in, in Korea. Much of this artillery is sighted or within range uh, of Seoul. In other words, they can strike Seoul. They are located in what's called HARTS, hardened artillery sites. These are underground positions where guns, ammo, and barracks and living facilities for the soldiers are located. Basically, the soldiers live where they're going to fight. There's three to eight artillery positions in each HART. And they could also have or primary and alternate firing positions. Now, these hearts are built into the sides of mountains, and they are chosen so they're difficult angles to be hit at by uh, counter-battery fire or fixed rotary wing aircraft. They also have air defense artillery units that protect them. One issue that they may have, though, is that due to the financial situation of North Korea is that they don't rotate their ammunition on a regular basis. And we, about a decade ago, we had a uh, North Koreans uh, right before Kim Jong-un took over, they bombed at a South Korean island and they had a dud rate of about 33% or at least 33%. Well, that's promising, I guess, on one side. Um, do, do we think that this, this reliance on artillery is going to essentially change how they fight? I mean, we've established that they're less casualty-averse than we are, um, but I read in the, in the manual that they sought to stay close to the, to the enemy, being the Americans or the ROC, in order to mitigate our air superiority. Uh, how, are, how do they plan to employ their fires if they're so close that they've neutralized our air superiority? 
Well, the infantry armor are going to try to stay close to the rocks or, the, or us. We might not call in artillery uh, or air, aerial support because of fear of friendly fire. Conversely, with their artillery, they're going to fire danger close to their own troops because they're not really worried about, uh, about that. They're just not uh, adverse to, to casualties. And so that's one of their plans. Now, their hearts, uh, the air, there's lots of air defense artillery units. I didn't provide the number of, of units. And they're, gonna, uh, they're going to provide uh, coverage for the hearts. And also, when they start on the move, they're going to try to protect their artillery with their air defense weapons. Now, one thing that the KPA noted during the American operation in Bosnia in 1999, uh, I believe is the year, is that they, uh, the number of decoys that the aviation shot at. The first re- report said they, we knocked out so many tanks and, and, and armored personnel carriers, and then the numbers continued to drop as more research was conducted. And so they are going to emphasize the use of decoys to try to, to get uh, their enemy to waste ammunition on targets that are not really targets. So they're watching and trying to learn. So that was the air war in Kosovo, right? So, yeah, because I remember the BDA. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's Kosovo, not Bosnia. But, yeah. So that's interesting they were paying that. Yeah, our our adversaries often find themselves in their own community of practice, sharing information about our operations and the operations of our allies in order to develop techniques to mitigate, you know, what we have, what we're projected to do. You know, that's an example of that. You know, what works against us, what doesn't work against us. You know, and you can, as an intel analyst, you can spend your entire day listening to chatter between nefarious, you know, people out there that want to, you know, do us harm, talking about what might work and what might not work that they're seeing, whether it's in Syria or, you know, wherever in the world uh, that we might be operating or have operated recently. Thankfully, we haven't <clears throat> haven't had to uh, address this next issue in our recent history, but I want to touch on the use of chemical weapons. North Korea is known for having a large stockpile of chemical weapons, and I'm curious as to how do we see them employing these weapons? And, and and my, my question is, is are they are they distributed at the tactical level? Are they is this are, are authorities withheld in the strategic force? How does that break down? Yeah, uh, the North Koreans have about twenty five hundred to five thousand tons of chemical weapons, and they have twenty different types of chemical munitions. Now, uh, selected forward positions are uh, will be targeted, probably to isolate Seoul, so that their forces could move south. Seoul is probably their big target, and they think it's a psychological target to take. If they take Seoul, they think they probably have won. They're also going to target air bases, ports, command and control facilities, communications, computer nodes, intelligence gathering assets, surveillance equipment, reconnaissance assets. Now, most of these targets will be in South Korea, but it could possibly, they might even, uh, you know, hit Japan if, you know, American ships are, are uh, you know, stopping there or whatever, if that ever were to come. So because they have the range of weapons to reach that, that distance. Now, you talk about control. In peacetime, these are controlled at a high level by the strategic force, but in wartime, the, uh, the weapons uh, or the munitions will be uh, given down to the lower levels and uh, whatever mission they've been directed to fire, they'll, they'll fire them. 
Now, granted, just like the regular ammunitionless duds, uh, how well these chemical weapons have been maintained might become an issue for them themselves. So I kind of, we, we've talked some of the interesting tactical pieces, I think, that, that make North Korea unique. Um, but I kind of want to walk up to the operational or high, high tactical operational level. And I want to look at, you know, how the North Koreans, they have a, a construct very similar to our use of decisive action, which is offense, defense, and stability operations. However, the North Koreans have offense, defense, and counter stability operations. So if we could briefly discuss what is counter stability, uh, how do they see it, and, and is it different than insurgency? We developed the term, essentially forwarded the term counter stability. I don't think we originally came up with it, but uh, big advocates of it. Because you can do things that cause struggles and competition and in areas that aren't necessarily military conflict that support your military conflict without being an insurgency. And so things we call coin on our side, on the blue side, um, that, that work against those things would work against these actions. But North Korea is not an insurgency, it's a state. But they could have actors inside South Korea doing things that would look very familiar to anybody who worked you know, in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan because of the types of actions that were going on. And so counter stability is the rectangle and you know, insurgency is the square. Counter stability is the actions that are you know, executed to make it difficult to proceed with your mission, accomplish your task, without you necessarily being an insurgency doing it. You know, so state actors do these things as well. Well, and, you know, so that's really timely in terms of the emphasis within DOD and the National Defense Strategy on competition. And so you see other manifestations. Um, now, while they're uh, public announcements, sometimes the, the use of the language seems a little funny. Uh, we may not be the audience for a lot of that. Um, and when it's in its uh, Korean proper dialect and, and you've got a different audience is receiving, you know, there's arguments that a lot of the unresting um, in the South and you know, the big strikes and, and so forth from 30 years ago, you know, they were encouraging those kinds of things, behavior, protests on university campuses. From time to time, there's, there's challenges with, you know, connections back, you know, among some academics and stuff. Um, and we see that. And that's something that the DOD, you know, has become more focused on when we talk about our other adversaries. I think it's been going on there, correct me if I'm wrong, but probably for, since 1953. Right. You know? and this is the, so that's the catch-all term that includes those actions that aren't necessarily offense and defense. So, and it, it also, it conveniently mirrors up to, you know, if we're in the offense defense stability business, our adversary is going to be in the defense offense counter stability business. Right, you know, just to help you know set that framework. And so the the key was to get to disassociate to some extent the actions that you take to do things in competition and to um, reduce you know the stability of an area, and you are not an insurgency. That's really what it comes down to. Well, it also seems to kind of dovetail with this idea of a two front war which is in the manual. And, you know, it struck me as odd because usually you would think that uh, a nation doesn't want to fight a two-front war. That's difficult. However, this seems like something that North Korea is inclined to pursue should hostilities break out. And I guess if I'm curious as to what this, I think the first, the, the first front we see is the DMZ in conventional, I, I like the word kinetic warfare. But this second front, can you guys give us some background on what the second front looks like and how that would unfold? Sure. Uh 
when we think of a two-front war, we normally think of the German army during World War One and World War Two, where they're facing an enemy on both both sides and they're in the middle. That's not what the North Koreans are talking about in their doctrine when they're talking a two-front war. The first front will be the conventional war across the DMZ, pushing on Seoul or trying to reach Seoul. Now, the second front is going to be conducted by their special operations forces. There's, they have approximately 180,000 to 200,000 they call soft. Now, they will be inserted by air, sea, and land. And while some of these units are similar to American Special Forces units or Ranger units, most are not. They are, however, considered more elite soldiers than the rest of the Army. Throughout North Korea, the regular Army is required during planting season to help plant rice and during harvest season to harvest rice. They're also designated to build construction projects and roads. However, the soft soldiers are do not get assigned those duties so they can continue to train throughout the year. They would uh, land or land or go deep into the into the rear area to create chaos uh, for the most part. There are some strategic soft units that are controlled by the Reconnaissance General Bureau and sniper brigades and they would conduct deep reconnaissance missions and their aim would be strategic targets, also hitting those combat service support units or command posts that they find. There's also four soft units that are assigned to the forward, four forward deployed corps that are across the DMZ. They would actually probably be the lead unit in, in the attack, ground attack across that. They're also going to conduct airborne operations against key targets, Probably brigade size and lower. They don't have the air force to to uh, to drop anything bigger than that. In fact, probably one brigade attack, uh, drop would be it. Uh, they would also conduct forward reconnaissance ahead of the ground forces, and there would also be some uh, forward observers for the strategic force. And as I said, their primary targets are command posts, logistic nodes, and those combat service support units headed to the front. But this would be conducted deeper in, into the in, into South Korea. So, so do they, from from your assessment, from what you've what you've studied on the North Koreans, do they see this this war as being a quick, decisive, or is this are they trying to pull us into like a protracted bleed us out, make test our will? If we were theoretically in a conflict, with North if Korea. you were theoretically, just so they throw that out. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. yes. yes. Okay, We're uh, not discussing old plans. We're just talking right, about yeah. it. It's just, just for conversation. Yes, they want they uh, they would want a uh, short war because they uh, don't have the resources for a full war. One of their immediate aims would be to capture Seoul, and they think by capturing Seoul that that would cause the uh, the South to to surrender. Now they'd want to do this before American uh, forces reinforce the Second Division over there. And I'll, to make it sort of what the Russians did in Crimea when, uh, when you know, Crimea was taken over and boom, it's all over. And, and uh, you know, the international community decided not to interfere with what the Russians did. 
Now, they're going to try to slow down the American reinforcements from arriving, and potential options could include their submarines. They have a bunch of submarines sinking ships that are bringing equipment, supplies, and personnel to South Korea. They could set up minefields out the, off the South Korean ports, and they could also use their chemical weapons on the ports and airports and even, as I said, in, in, in Japan. Uh, but they want to do, uh, separate the reinforcements so that the war could be over quicker. And it, it also seems as though they're, that you guys have assessed they're taking a more multi-domain approach um, to operations. And I think, Dave, I think you mentioned it earlier um, when we talked about the Electronic Intelligence Warfare, or EIW, that's in the pub. And one of the things, I guess, that strikes me as interesting is that in reading it, this, this, these lines or these, these operations the EIW and their, the isolation efforts are focused on like on disinformation and perception management. I'm curious, do, do we see this as being at all successful? Because I mean, I know from an American perspective, I can't, you know, I can't see how the North Koreans take themselves seriously when they think that they would be able to, you know, manage or manage the perceptions of the South Korean audience or a U.S. audience through their disinformation. So the country is not living in the same information age that the rest of the world is living in. Uh, the North Korea does have a large number of computer hackers, but they work from outside the country, from other places. Mm. And they're busy stealing money and trying to steal secrets uh, from, the, uh, from the rest of the world. And unless uh, you're approved, people inside North Korea cannot access the internet like the rest of the world. Now, there was just, just within the last three months, the North Koreans have uh, set out a goal to recruit even more computer hackers from their universities. So they're putting more emphasis on that. Now, getting directly to the part on information and perception management, North Korea for years has controlled the narrative of what their people know about the outside world. Two decades ago, the only information that the people in North Korea had was what the government told them. With cell phones, that's no longer the case. Uh, a lot of them now have Chinese cell phones, especially the ones that live along the Chinese border, uh, because the North Korean cell phones uh, are, you know, uh, controlled uh, on how much information is given to them for there. Now, there's many people that uh, in North Korea that no longer believe what the government tells them. However, most North Koreans are either too scared to say so publicly about what's going on uh, because they're afraid of being sent to one of the gulags in the country or something uh, worse happening to them. And the thing about North Korean political crime is that if you commit a crime in North Korea, such as uh, illegally using a Chinese cell phone or whatever, you're sent to prison and two more generations are sent to prison. So if you're, uh, you have children, your children get to go to prison with you, and your parents do too. They take out three generations, and sometimes it's not just to the gulag, it's, it's they execute them. And uh, in fact, they just executed a smuggler in the last six weeks, I think. So this is much more about internal perception management versus an external audience. Yes. So, we, cause I, so they, don't, they don't see themselves as being able to influence too much beyond their own borders? Or I, I don't necessarily. That's we're leaving the realm of tactics a little bit, mm -hmm. but it's a great question. I would tell you that perception management as a, as a as an action 
you know, one of the very first things you do is you're trying to figure out a very refined audience to manage. You and I can't be influenced by the North Korea. It'd be a waste of time. You know, if we're, if we're in this fight, the people in this room are going to be in this fight until it's done one way or the other. And one of the things we changed with operations in Afghanistan and Iraq is before then, our potential adversaries did not believe that we had the wherewithal to stay in an, in an area of operations. Anything they could do to make it painful, and we'd pack up and leave. And we changed that significantly by going into those theaters and staying in those theaters for 10 plus years. You know, so that, that equation isn't the same. But who do you have to convince of something? Us or the populace that votes for representatives that vote for the appropriations bill or the Japanese and whether they're going to give us you know, maritime passage rights and use of ports. I mean, it's still possible to influence because we're not necessarily going to be the target of that influence campaign. You know, and so one thing that and it's, this is getting outside the realm of that the ATP is designed for, but that that is something that we, you know, eventually is going to be an ATP at the operational level, um, and we're going to be talking that in some detail. You know, and who those audiences might be, and what kind of actions they might take against them. You know, that's all you know part of our bread. That, that gets uh, you know gets this other idea too. So when people think information or influence, we're just thinking what people are talking about, right? What they're saying. What's my narrative? What's the message? Um, and they forget the physical activities that are designed to send a message as well. So John mentioned, you know, uh, audiences outside of the peninsula, you know, are very, uh, they pay very close attention to what the North Koreans are doing when they're testing rockets and ballistic missiles and they're shooting them over islands uh, in, in Japan uh, or putting shipping at risk and those kinds of things. So... A lot of those physical activities, I think, that you see send a message as well, as do the positioning of forces along the DMZ. You know, I, I think that, that there is a certain coherence to it. I kind of want to, in our, in our opening uh, episode of Breaking Doctrine, we, we covered command and control and mission command. And I'm curious how the North Koreans view command and control as a very authoritarian, rigid, top-down state uh, do they do they also adhere to that type of uh, command and control system in the military, or is there any room for mission command? Yes, the KPA has a very top-down driven command structure. While there is some information in KPA doctrine that suggests officers should take initiative, most will not. Now, if an officer takes initiative or violates an order because of a change in the tactical situation, and succeeds, he'll be okay. But if the mission fails, the subordinate officer will likely be so unfamiliar, I think, fired I mean, you know. or executed. Yeah. Just the degree of penalty. Like that. Therefore, it's uh, physically safer to do nothing more and nothing less than the direct order given to him. If the mission fails, the commander can say, I followed orders, and, uh, you know, therefore... You know, he won't be relieved or worse. Now, down to the, the company level, every com uh, unit also has a political officer in addition to the commander. And the political officer has to approve any plan done by the commander. So if a commander decides he wants to change from the, uh, the order, his political officer is going to have to approve him. Now, the political officer's job is to ensure that the soldiers 
obey orders, and do not retreat without authorization. And he does this with immediate summary execution of anybody that starts to retreat without giving an order. And the lowest level that a commander can order withdrawal is at the regimental level. So basically, if a battalion and below is on the attack, they're going to attack until there's nobody left in the unit, so forth, uh, without that command to withdraw. In, in the commissars, these political commissars, I assume they have limited military knowledge? Uh, they're, they're, they are selected for their political connections to, uh, to the Kim family or, or so forth. So they're the most politically reliable people uh, type thing. Just as an aside, there's three, uh, three levels of people in, the, in Korea. You have the supporters, which is about 25% of the population. And then you have the bottom 25%, which are the people that are in the gulags and that are against the regime. And then you have 50% in the middle that basically are just going along. So, so these political officers would all come from that top 25%, as well as most of the commanders also, the, the regular unit commanders will come from that top 25 So this is being said with my trainer hat on, right? I mean, ultimately, the point of the ATPs is to help the Army be better, right? Just want to say that in a, in a regime or a ab- potential adversary with an authoritative, authoritarian structure, and a commander who is not encouraged to take their own initiative is only bad if what they are doing is bad. So if they're act- acting on a successful axis, the fact that they have a you know dog in a bone kind of attitude about it isn't going to hurt them. We have to be flexible enough to make that choice bad. So that when they can't get off that choice because they don't have the initiative to get off that choice, it hurts their plan. Well, I, I would also assume that it uh, it opens them up to some to, to exploitation. If we can decapitate or take out leadership, they could, I assume, to our if, wrench the plans. if the soldiers uh, are expecting to get orders and aren't getting yeah. them and only act with them, that's true. Just you know, one classic military example is the Soviet Union's known for being fairly authoritarian. And the Germans invented mission tactics, but you know how that went down. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily always a bad thing. Also, when you have, um, this is an observation from someone from the threat side, when you have an authoritarian hierarchy like North Korea, uh, things get made simple for you. And so my, my battle drills and my battle plan are not complex. And sometimes that is an advantage if the person on the other side is trying to recreate Normandy every time they write an op order. You know, so you, you, so they it, don't have boards, bureaus, and it, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to judge, sir. But, bubs, cubs. You know, but the, we do we do find watching the you know um, opposing forces uh, in training events, but also adversaries in you know real world operations. Both they're very similar in that respect, where the the adversary has got a very very simple plan. And people are just on it, and they're going to execute their part of it, and there's not really a sequel or a branch or a very complex thing. And who they're dealing with has made it super intensely complex and, and spent all night working on the order. Nobody had time to rehearse. You know, and they had some advantages from that. So it's not all a bad thing. We've got to make it a bad thing. We've got to actively, as you know, the adversaries of them, we've got to go in there and make that a bad thing for them to be that way. It just doesn't come bad. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, kind of the don't interrupt the enemy when they're making a mistake right. option. Yep. Right. <laughs> That's absolutely But account for the fact that they're yeah. going to be relentless in terms of... Yeah, if they're smashing the thing that you don't want to smash, you know, they're going to keep at it until they're done. So make that thing less valuable. Change the, change the dynamics of the situation. Well, gentlemen, I want to close with a question here about how, this, how we should approach this ATP. How does the operational force use it? I can see the implications for OP4 at our training centers and whatnot. Um, and, sir, if you want to, uh, to, to chime in here, what's the best, I guess, use of this? Yeah, so John and I and, and Mr. Greco, the TRADOC G2, had discussed this probably a couple of years ago now. Um, but so we've had this thing called the decisive action training environment for a while. And it's this menu that takes much like the, the, the training circular 7100.2 did for the OP4, but it put all the bad stuff that any adversary in the world could do, and it put it in a database, and then you could build training uh, events out of that, right? Uh, and, and so that's all fine and good, but most of the people in units are not the ones building the training events, right? Training events are created by the senior leadership and, and informed by intelligence professionals and so forth. And the majority of Army aren't those folks. Um, in parallel with that line of thought was this idea that um, – over the last decade, the Army has gone away from forward station forces in places like Europe and specifically the Korean Peninsula, and we, we rotate a lot of our forces in and out of there. Um, so when you're rotating them in and out, uh, your opportunities to, to get a depth of knowledge, uh, you know, you show up on the ground, you're kind of getting yourself oriented, you start to do some training events, uh, and then pretty soon you're, you're on your way back out again. So where do you get that level of subject matter expertise uh, for the threat that you might face in an operation. So we wanted to create publications that would allow rotational forces, as well as people that are going to be stationed there permanently, um, at that platoon, company, battalion, and, and even brigade level, uh, to have something that they could put together, their own tabletop exercises if they wanted to. They could do war games. Uh, they could do all, all these non-high-speed, non-expensive things and become subject matter experts for the theater uh, that they were going to find themselves operating, you know, they're going to get a notification maybe uh, in some cases two years out, hey, I'm going to rotate to Korea in a while. So now we can start to focus our leader development, our training events. Um, you know, only at the CTCs do you have a professional op for, so how do I want to train my op for uh, for that? Uh, and so if you have a kind of a one-stop shop, uh, you have the ability to do that. There's this other bit too. So we've got a lot of training circulars out and just like we have lots of other uh, things for people to read. And, and not, people don't generally have a ton of time to, to sit around. Everybody's busy, right? Um, but, again, it goes back to this idea. When, when we had the, the Soviet Union uh, or the Soviet Army publication, you were expected, if you were an armor officer, to know everything about uh, Soviet armor. By, by type, you had to memorize it, you had to regurgitate it twice a year uh, for your tank uh, gunnery crew skills test. Um, but the other branches did the same thing. So infantrymen were expected to understand Soviet infantry. Uh, the engineers were the experts. So it didn't all fall on the intelligence officer on the staff, the battalion S2, to regurgitate. You know, they're worried about courses of action. What John talked about is, you know, this is what the plan is in this piece of terrain that is most likely most dangerous and so forth. But the other staff officers were expected to contribute during IPB and the discussion of course of action about what the enemy would be doing with these capabilities in a particular phase of the operation. And we didn't have 
um, a, a doctrinal reference for that kind of thing. So it was kind of that perspective, I think, that, that drove us towards solutions like this. I want to add to that if I can. Yeah, yeah first of all, yes uh, to that for sure. Um, but also, by, by regulation, we are required in the operational environment enterprise to express to the opfors how to act, uh, not just the Georgia CTCs, not just the active duty expression, but also National Guard and Reserve component. So that's a, but we don't limit ourselves to just what the regulation requires. In addition to that, we were finding that people were coming to us to help talk to them, not just I made this so that if you were at 11th ACR or 1-4 or Geronimo, you knew how to do your job, but people want to know, hey, I want insight into that. And we were really the only game in town in that area. And three, uh, not 350, uh, 7102 was too many things for too many masters. It was this composite model, but it did not get to a number of the things that Colonel Creed was talking about. It could be used for that, but you had to go in there knowing what to look for and having that as kind of a, a start point and add things to it. We're trying to make this more accessible. Um, and I would tell you, I think that the simplest way, just check me if I'm wrong in this, Rich, but the simplest way is if you want task proficiency training, where you're out there to be good at what you do and you want to be tested to the limit, then the TC series, which is going to stay in place, is for you. If you want to fight Russia, right, and you go to the ATP on Russia. If you want to fight North Korea, you go to the ATP on North Korea. A mission rehearsal type event. It wouldn't be a mission rehearsal unless we had a mission to go there, but you know what I mean by, by saying that. And so if I wanted to focus in specifically on that, um, that set of techniques laid over the basic you know, tactics that are, that are fundamental, uh, that that actor brings to the table, that's what you want to do. And when it comes to sites of action training environment, if you're doing Date Europe, you could either use 700.2 or the Russia ATP. If you're in PACOM, you could use either 700.2 and .3 or the North Korea ATP or the China ATP. You know, you could focus in. That's really your choice as an exercise designer which way you want to go. That's how we want it to be in the future as these get published. Well, I think you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, it's an it's a incredibly well-written book, and uh, it definitely provides the, uh, the focus that I think units can draw on as they look towards specific environments that they might find themselves fighting in. So, gentlemen, on that note, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today, and I look forward to this book uh, coming out. Thanks, Chris. Watch that. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this is Breaking Doctrine.